0: You are listening to the Entrust Podcast. This weekly course seeks to provide theological training within a ministry setting, so you can take what you learn and share it with others. Check out more resources at rockycreek.church. For now, here is this week's episode. Thank you so much, Travis, and it is good to see you all tonight. I appreciate the opportunity to come. Uh, We're going to be really informal tonight, uh, but we're going to deal with a topic that is of critical importance when we talk about taking the gospel to the nations, when we talk about cross-cultural ministry, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with someone who is from a different culture. And so uh, when when your pastor asked me to do this, this is the topic that He assigned to me. So we're going to try to uh, look at it tonight in a way I hope that will make it easy to understand. And hopefully, uh, even it will be something that might spark some interest and excitement in you. You might want to dig a little deeper into this whole concept of contextualization. So let let me begin by just asking a question. How many of you have had the opportunity to talk with, get to know, have a relationship with, or perhaps even share the gospel with someone from a totally different culture than the one you grew up in. Okay, several of you have done that. Uh, It is an exciting thing to do. Uh, It can be an intimidating thing to do because... God as the author and the creator of cultural diversity, and I believe it was in His heart from the very beginning to create diversity. We see it all in creation. We look at the seven day, uh, the six days of creation and we see all that He created, the different uh, types of animal life, the, the, the different kinds of geography. At the Tower of Babel, uh, when mankind had decided they were not going to obey God, and what many have called the cultural mandate, when God said, I want you to multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, that too, I believe, was part of God's plan for cultural diversity. Mankind, you remember, at Babel said, no, we're not going to do that. We don't want to be scattered all over the face of the earth. Uh, they had a common language, they had a common culture, and God said, no, I've got another plan. And so, He confused their languages, which is another way of saying He gave them different languages, and He scattered them abroad on the face of the earth, and from there we we see the beginning of these different cultures. And I believe, if you look at the overall storyline of the Bible, we could say that... uh, One of the central messages of Scripture is that God loves diversity. He has created diversity. And what He has done in order to bring Himself the greatest possible glory is to unite all of that diversity in Christ for His greater glory. And that is why throughout the New Testament we we read that there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. Uh, All of the diversity in our world which God created and is part of His great plan one day. And He is in the process now of uniting all that diversity in Christ for His greater glory. I'll tell you one of the things that uh, I've had the privilege of being a part of on more than one occasion. and, And I'm guessing probably some of you have too. And that is to be in a worship service where there are people from a variety of different cultures. And perhaps we're singing a hymn that, that is known by all of those in the culture, but they're singing it in their mother tongue. In other words, you might hear some, someone singing in Spanish, someone else singing in Arabic, uh, someone else singing in uh, Wolof. And uh, you're all there in one culture, and, and I'm sitting there singing in English, but you can hear all of this different cultural diversity, all of this worship being raised to our Heavenly Father and I'm going to tell you something. There, you know, I've been in monocultural worship experiences where most of us are from the same culture and I've had some wonderful worship experiences and you have too. But there is something very different about being in a worship experience from people, with people from different cultures who are all lifting their voices in praise to our Heavenly Father and we recognize suddenly that God has done something incredible through the Gospel. He has made us all brothers and sisters in Christ no matter what our culture is. No matter what our language is, all of those cultural, language, ethnic differences have been broken down and we have become one in Christ. And that's what our, our, our God is about. And when you get to the end of the New Testament and you begin to read the book of Revelation, you begin to see there that uh, people from every nation, tongue, tribe, and language will be gathered around the throne. This is, this is part of God's plan in creating all of this wonderful diversity and then uniting all of that diversity in Christ for His greater glory. And so what we're talking about tonight is how can you and I be the most effective in sharing the gospel with people from different cultures so that God may raise up worshipers from those different cultures that one day will be gathered around that throne in heaven along with you and and me and all of those who have professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the big word that we're we're using tonight that helps us understand how we can be effective in sharing the gospel cross-culturally with people who think differently than we do, who have different backgrounds from us, who have a different way of looking at life, how can we from one culture be the most effective that we can be in sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with people from other cultures. Now, there's all kinds of definitions uh, that have been offered for this term contextualization. And I'll put a few of them up here on the screen just that I think might help us a little bit to understand. I, I like this one. It's simple. It says contextualization is the word we use for the process of making the gospel and the church as much at home as possible in a given cultural context. In other words, what you and I feel here in our own culture when we come to church, when we hear the Gospel, we want other people in other cultures to have that same feeling of, oh, I'm at home here. I'm not being asked to adopt somebody else's A way of worship. I'm not being asked to adopt someone else's church structure. I'm not being pulled out of my culture in order to become a Christian. Christianity feels at home. I feel at home here and I'm not having to step out of my culture. I'm not having to change the way um, I I act and react with the people around me. Now the gospel is going to bring change uh, to every culture but we're not trying to pull people out of their culture. We're trying to identify with them in their culture and share the gospel and plant churches in ways that Christianity feels like it belongs in that culture. It's not a foreign religion we're taking somewhere uh, is the idea. Now if you think about this, go to scripture. This is exactly what God did, right? In, in bringing salvation to us and in the Gospel of John chapter, chapter 1, now this is the message uh, translation paraphrase here of John 1.14. Speaking of Jesus, it says the Word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Um, the translations we're more familiar with probably says something like, "In the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Literally, that word dwelt means to tabernacle or to pitch one's tent in the midst. And so I like the way Peterson has put this in language that is easy for us to understand Christ took on flesh and blood He became like us. He identified with us and through the miracle and in some ways uh, the mystery and even the scandal some would say of the incarnation of God actually moved into our neighborhood. We could touch Him. We could talk with Him. Or those those early disciples could. They could touch Him. They could talk with Him. They they slept out under the Palestinian sky and looked at those stars with Jesus. Uh, Scripture says Jesus became weary. We know that He wept over the lostness of the people around Him. He was moved and He wept at the death of His friend Lazarus. And He knew hunger And He certainly knew pain and rejection, betrayal, all of those things. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, in the person of Christ, what? We have a great high priest who is able to sympathize with us in all things. Why? Because He's experienced all things as we have, even though He was without sin. So God, through the Incarnation, is showing us really this principle of contextualization. How He could best identify with us and make the message of salvation through Christ in that first century Jewish-Palestinian context something that the people could understand and relate to. And so, in in the very sending of Christ, we see this. But, before we really look at contextualization, we need to understand what we're talking about when we talk about culture. Uh, There are all kinds of different cultures in the world. Let me me just... uh, do some give and take here if you want to. Uh, somebody just, I'm not, I'm not looking for a specific answer. We're not in a classroom. This isn't a test. <laughs> this is just, uh, I'd just like to hear your thoughts. When you hear the word culture, what do you think of? Anybody want to venture a, an idea of what you think culture is when you hear that word? An ethnic group. Food. Food. <laughs> Food. Food is a big part of culture. It certainly is. Environment. Environment, yes. Good. You guys need to be standing here and just let me be sit out, sitting out there. What else? Beliefs and ideas. Beliefs and ideas, is that what? Yes, exactly. Lifestyles. I'm sorry? Lifestyles. Lifestyle. What yeah. What you find in younger? Culture, something you find in yogurt. Oh, <laughs> Okay, yes. Well, you know, that's really interesting that you would say that because uh, that is another definition of culture. You know, when we're thinking about a, a, a culture of bacteria or something there in yogurt. But, you know, you also hear people say things like, uh, well, he's a cultured person. And, and when we hear that, we think refined and, you know, proper and all of that. You know, we're, we're, we're good cultured people. But when we talk about culture missiologically, uh, when we're talking about communicating the gospel, planning churches, seeing people from different languages and tribes and peoples and nations coming to Christ, then we have to take seriously the cultural context of the people we're talking to and sharing the gospel with. And I hope you hear in the word cultural context the word contextualization. It's just another way of saying we're taking someone's culture seriously. We're trying to understand the impact and the imprint that that person's culture has had on him or her. And let me tell you something in case you don't know it, you have been incredibly impacted and imprinted by Western culture. You just don't realize it as much until you find yourself in another culture. And then you begin to realize, whoa, there's some big differences here in the way I think and the way they think, the way they look at things and the way I look at things, what they do and what I do, what I think's right and what they think's right. And so that's culture. Yes, absolutely. Let me give you a definition here. And <clears throat> all of these terms here are important. Culture is the integrated system of learned. And that's a key word, learned patterns of behavior, values, beliefs, products, and institutions characteristic of a society. So you grew up learning the culture that you grew up in, whatever it it was. And there may be some folks here tonight who grew up in another culture, I don't know. But most of us basically, I'm going to assume, grew up here in the United States, probably in the southern part of the United States, maybe maybe some of us grew up in other places. And there are different cultures even here in the United States, right? Geographically, there's southern culture that that I grew up in. There's northern culture, which I have had uh, quite a bit of experience being in. It's very different. There's a Midwestern type culture. There's a West Coast culture. There's a New England culture. There there are differences in culture geographically even within our own um, United States. And it impacts the way we look at life. It impacts the things we do. The way we talk. The foods that we eat. So it is a learned, integrated system. All these things go together, but you learn it. So you don't realize growing up how strongly... You have been culturally imprinted by the culture you grew up in. So there are cultures, uh, ethnic cultures. There are also organizational cultures. There is a church culture, right? Um, Most of us are comfortable here in this culture. We've grown up in it or, you know, we came to Christ at some point. We've gotten used to it. We've learned what church is about. But if I were to go out here on the street and just grab somebody off the street who had never been in church, didn't know anything uh, about Christianity much, and brought them in here, they'd be they'd be lost. They well, in more ways than one, right? But they would they uh, psychologically and emotionally they wouldn't know what am I supposed to do? And when I talk to people who aren't believers, sometimes you know some of the things they'll ask if if they're invited to church. Well, I don't know. I I don't I don't have. I don't, I don't have clothes. You know, we have to say, well, it's not about clothes, you know, or I don't know all about the Bible. That's okay. You know, they, they're they just, they don't know anything about church culture. Uh, and they're generational cultures. Right? Uh, I work on the campus of North Greenville University. And I'm always dealing with these emerging generations. Let me tell you, they think differently. Uh, in, in many different ways than, than my generation. Some of your generation. So there's all kinds of cultural differences, not just ethnic, organizational cultures, they're, uh, again, generational cultures, but it is this integrated system of learned p- patterns of behavior, our values, beliefs, products, and institutions that are characteristic of society. We don't have time tonight, but we could, you know, we could talk about Southern culture and just ask, tell me some things about Southern culture. And we talked about certain kind of foods, certain kind of dress, um, You know certain kind of work all that kind of stuff we we could talk about characteristic of the deep south culture that may not be true of new england or the west coast or somewhere else but we've we've been imprinted by these things so a person's culture your culture my culture shapes the way we look at life the way we understand life and again you don't really understand how powerfully you've been shaped by your own culture until you find yourself in another culture. And then you begin making comparisons. And you begin to realize, hey, I don't, I don't like that. I don't understand that. Um, and it gives you some insight into your own culture. And we tend to make judgments about other cultures. We compare them to our own. Um, my son, uh, oldest son, David, uh, served as a missionary uh, in a couple of different places, but his last place of service was Ireland. And so I went to visit him there uh, in Ireland. And you know in Ireland, as in England, they they drive on the wrong side of the road. You know that, right? Um, I came to realize, no, it's not right. They don't drive on the wrong side of the road. They just drive on a different side of the road, right? It's not wrong. It's just different. I didn't like it. I would have been scared to death to drive. In fact, my son had an accident there until he got accustomed to it. But we tend to make judgments. that's just a simple uh, example, but we tend to make judgments about people and about people's culture because we compare their culture to our culture and we say, well, that's wrong. And sometimes it may be wrong. We have to hold Scripture up to everything. Every culture is subject to Scripture, which is supercultural, which transcends culture and there's certain things that are right and wrong no matter what culture you're in. But we tend to make snap judgments about other cultures because that's not the way we do it. And so we, we will say, well, that's wrong or that's uncomfortable or whatever. Um, so culture is sort of like the lens that we look through that gives meaning to life that enables us to interpret reality That's something called worldview. Now this is important. Culture is a total way of life. It determines in large measure what you do, what you think, what you say, what you like and dislike, what you consider to be possible and impossible, what you believe to be true and false, and what you regard as acceptable and unacceptable. And your culture has shaped you that way. If you were to go with me to somewhere like papua new guinea or even to some of the remote parts of uh, andean ecuador you would find people there who grew up in an animistic culture with an animistic worldview they they believe in the power of ancestors and spirits um, and black magic and their shamans and witch doctors and all of those things Well, you know, generally here in the West, we would just say, well, we don't don't believe in that. You know, that's wrong for them to believe those things. I would point you to the fact that Scripture has an awful lot to say about spirits and demons and those who practice sorcery and black magic. There are many instances of that. Here in the West, that's not important to us. And we tend to poo-poo that and say that's not real. We don't ever think about those things. But in those other cultures, those things are very real. And it affects the the way we present the gospel in those contexts. Because that's reality to those those people. And while we may not live and move and think in that realm, Scripture certainly affirms that there are spirits. And there are um, powers and principalities and rulers of you know of this present age that are out there. We don't see them, and we don't generally think about them. I'm grateful that Chuck Lawless was here several weeks ago, and I'm sure he probably shared some of that when he talked about spiritual warfare. Um, but we just need to be careful that our culture shapes the way we look at life. It is the lens through which we look at it. Some have talked have uh, described culture this way, like an onion. Okay, if if you've ever had an onion and peeled an onion and cut an onion, you know there are different layers to that onion. And this is one way that helps us. The outermost layer of that onion, the skin, that's, that's, that's what you can see and hear and touch in culture. Okay? So, generally when we go to another country, what we're most impressed with immediately is just the outermost layer of that culture. We see what the people eat. We look at how they dress. Uh, we listen to the sounds. We smell the smells. We, we see the temples or um, the minarets or whatever it is that, that we see in the culture we're in. That's just the surface level of the culture. It tells us something. But it doesn't get down to the deep level of culture to help us understand why people think the way they think. So you got to go a little bit deeper. The next layer of culture. Uh, are those the, the systems and the institutions of that culture. How is the government set up? How is religion work itself out? What's the education system like in those places and why do they do it the way they do it? What are the institutions and the systems of that culture? That helps us get a little bit deeper. Why do they do those things that they do? And then those systems and institutions generally produce the things that we can see here and touch. So you're going a little bit deeper there. And then finally, you get down to the core of a culture. That's a a culture's most basic values and beliefs. That's its worldview. That's that's what interprets what is real, what's what's right, what's wrong in that culture. And then that that determines the kind of institutions and systems, and those institutions and systems then result in the surface-level part of culture that we can see, hear, and touch. So... A lot more we could say about culture, but we need to understand what it is and how important it is and why then contextualization becomes very, very important. Let me give you another definition here of contextualization. It is the attempt to communicate the person, the works, the word, and the will of God in a way that is faithful to Scripture, faithful to God's revelation, But that is also meaningful to the respondents, that is the people we're sharing the gospel with. It's meaningful to them in their respective culture and existential reality or context. In other words, um, why is the gospel good news for that people? How does it speak to their most deep felt needs? So, we're communicating who God is, who Christ is, what Scripture teaches, what God expects, but we're communicating it in a way that uh, it's not alien, it's not strange, it speaks to the deepest needs of the people there in that particular cultural context, and it meets the existential needs that they have in the world that they live in. Now, I'm going to put up a series of, of, of data points here. And I want you to look at it. And I, I, I hope this will be illustrative to help us see how worldview shapes the way we see things. Okay? So I'm going to put some data points up here. And then you can volunteer whoever wants to go first and tell me what you see. Star. That's what I saw. That's what you saw. Star. All right, let me put it back up there again. See anything else. Now see, we've been imprinted now with that star. It's kind of hard to see something else. How about this? A couple of pentagons there. That's certainly possible interpretation of the data. Anything else? Anybody see this? Is that possible? Sure. None of those things are wrong. Most of us, most of us immediately see the star. At least I did, and that's, that's, what, that's what came out first. So we and, and once we see the star, it's hard to see anything else. We've grown up hearing the gospel presented to us in a certain way. And if we have time tonight, we'll dig a little bit into that. By the, time, by the way, what time are we supposed to wrap up? Seven? Yeah. So uh, Ain't going to happen tonight. That we'll get to all of this, but um, anyway, once we're imprinted with that, it's very hard for us to see other possibilities of how the gospel can maybe perhaps be more effectively communicated. So again, one more one more thing here: contextual is a couple of contextualization attempts to communicate the gospel in word and deed, and to establish the church in ways that make sense to the people within their local cultural context, presenting Christianity in such a way that it meets people's deepest needs and penetrates their worldview, thus allowing them to follow Christ and remain within their own culture. In other words, we're not asking them to become Southern Baptists in Ghana. No, we're asking them to become Ghanese Christians Um, in in what we do when we share. We, We allow them to hear the Gospel in a culturally appropriate way and respond to it in culturally appropriate ways. Here again, last last one the translation of the unchanging content of the gospel of the kingdom into both verbal and visible form that is meaningful to people in their separate culture and within their particular existential situations, it makes the gospel good news by answering the questions people are asking within their specific cultural context. I'm going to give you an example. I mentioned Papua New Guinea a minute ago, and there's there's some marvelous stories there that came came out of uh, the ministry of Don Richardson. There, uh, there's a movie been made or a documentary, also a book called Peace Child, which really powerfully illustrates this. But anyway, a lot of tribal peoples, not just in places like New Guinea, but in in sub-Saharan Africa and other places, are animistic. And I can tell you, those people aren't worried so much about how they're going to get to heaven. That's not the question they're asking. The question they're asking is, how can I get through each day right here on earth? Because I'm having to placate all of these spirits. I'm having to make sure that my ancestors are being honored. They live in fear of these spirits and these ancestors, and they don't know how to navigate through life with that. So they make sacrifices, they make offerings. Um, They sometimes do self-harm. Why? Because they're wanting to prove to these ancestors and these spirits that um, uh, they're wanting to please them so that they will bless their crops and bless their family with health and make sure that their animals reproduce and all of those kinds of things. And so probably the best way to present the Gospel to a tribal animist is not to begin with the question that I grew up learning uh, in my early presentations of the Gospel. If you were to stand before God today and He were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? You're, You're answering a question they're not answering. I mean, they're not even asking. They're not asking the question about eternity. They're consumed with what's happening to them right now. So... A better way to share the gospel with a tribal animist who lives in fear of these spirits is to present Jesus Christ as the one who has power over over every other other power in the world. And there are multiple examples in the New Testament of Jesus casting out demons. Uh, The Gadarene demoniac comes to mind. All kinds of other, other things in the Old Testament and New Testament where this is an entry point to the people. And it's probably not best to start by talking about what terrible sinners they are and they need to have their sins forgiven you've got to get to that eventually but that's not the best place to start you want to start by answering the questions they're asking dealing with the deepest needs of their hearts in that particular culture now got way too much here to deal with Um, you, you got a piece of paper there with a story on it about the monkeys and the fish I want you to take just a minute and read. I tell you what, let's do this because I think it'll. I don't want to insult you tonight and, and, and make you think I don't think you know how to read because I know you do. But in order to speed through this, you just follow along and let me read it out loud, okay? And then I'm going to ask you some questions about it. This is the story. It's an old Tanzanian folktale. It reads like this The rainy season that year had been the strongest ever, and the river had broken its banks. There were floods everywhere, and the animals were all running up into the hills. The floods came so fast that many drowned, except the lucky monkeys who used their proverbial agility to climb up into the treetops. They looked down on the surface of the water where the fish were swimming and gracefully jumping out of the water as if they were the only ones enjoying the devastating flood. One of the monkeys saw the fish and shouted to his companion, Look down, my friend. Look at those poor creatures. They're going to drown. Do you see how they struggle in the water? Yes, said the other monkey. What a pity. Probably they were late in escaping to the hills because they seem to have no legs. How can we save them? I think we must do something. Let's go close to the edge of the flood where the water's not deep enough to cover us and we can help get them out. So the monkeys did just that. They started catching the fish but not without difficulty. One by one they brought them out of the water and put them carefully on the dry land. After a short time, there was a pile of fish laying on the ground, motionless. One of the monkeys said, do you see? They were tired. So now they're just sleeping and resting. Had it not been for us, my friend, these poor creatures without legs would have surely drowned. The other monkey said, yes, they were trying to escape from us because they couldn't understand our good intentions. But when they wake up, they'll be so very grateful because we have brought them salvation. Now tanzanian folk tale but there are some things here that are helpful to us as we think about sharing the gospel with other people let me ask you some questions right quick all right let's let's think positively about the monkeys here what what words might you use to describe them positively they were were compassionate they cared they were concerned They wanted to get involved, right? Wanted to do something. What else? I'm sorry. Did somebody else say something? Oh, wonderful intentions. Yes, absolutely. They 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 wanted these these fish to these people in the fish culture to be saved. Right? Best of intentions. And they acted on it. That's right. Exactly. That's a really good point. What do you think the monkey's motivation was for helping the fish? None. Just to help. Yeah, just... They thought, thought they were drowning, right? I mean, we've, it was like, if we don't do something, the, 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 the creatures in this fish culture are going to die. They're going to drown. All right, Good. There's a lot more we can say. I'm sorry, I'm rushing through this. All right, were there some assumptions that the monkeys made about the fish culture? Did they assume some things? Okay, they they, they don't have legs, so the, the assumption is they're not like us, right? So something must be wrong with them because we got legs, and they don't, so they can't get out of the water. Yeah, that's exactly right. What else? They're in trouble. They're in trouble. Mm -hmm. do you think deep down they thought the fish should be more like them I mean they assumed I think that that the fish breathed air from the atmosphere like they did so this is the way we do it this is you know we breathe and we have lungs so it's not good to have your lungs filled with water so we need to pull them out of there how do you think the fish felt about the help they were getting? Not, good. Not too good? I don't think so. Could you, could you give some advice to the monkeys for future situations when they might want to help? Research those they're trying to help. How about a little research into the, those they're trying to help? Might they have done well to try to learn a little bit about the fish culture before they started trying to pull them out of the water? You know? Let's let's find out what fish are like. Let's find out what they do. How they live. What What is the fish's worldview? So that we can do something that is contextually appropriate. And then finally... What ways might we be like the monkeys? Could we be like the monkeys? (laughs) Having good intentions, but maybe not making snap judgments about things, about values and what's important and what people need and how we need to give them help? Yes. We We can become very much like the monkeys if we're not careful. Paul, the Apostle Paul realized this and probably the greatest text dealing with, I think, the importance of contextualization is found here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 where Paul says, We will endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. For though I'm free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some, and I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. What is Paul saying here? Paul, the Hebrew of Hebrews, In his own words, the Jew of all Jews, the Pharisee of Pharisees, Uh, as to the law, he said, you know, without blemish, was called to be the great apostle to the Gentiles. So he was ministering both to those within his own cultural context and he was ministering out there in the Gentile world, among the nations. And he took different approaches with different groups of people. It is an amazing thing to study Paul and the way he shared the Gospel uh, in different places. When he was in Athens there in Acts chapter 17, what did he do? You remember as he stood there on, on Mars Hill looking out over the Areopagus? He looked around and he saw all the gods there and he saw this one idol with the inscription to the unknown God. And he seized on that He saw an opportunity in that culture among the Athenians who worshipped every god you could possibly think of and just in case they missed one, they, they created one here to an unknown god. And Paul said, I see you're very religious. And I see you have a statue here to an unknown god. Let me tell you who that unknown god is right into the context they're looking around he found a bridge he found a way to speak truth into that. So contextualization and I'm going to try to wrap things up here I got like a ton more slides but proper contextualization takes place here in this in this center center, center part we've got the world, we've got the culture, we've got the Word of God and we've got the body of Christ the church and where these things come together, This is where proper contextualization takes place. We take the Word of God, we take the the body of Christ, the church, and we present those things to the world in such a way that both the church and the gospel make sense to the people in their cultural context. Uh, I'll just put this this slide up here. Our goal in cross-cultural witness is to present the supercultural message of the gospel in culturally relevant terms, and there's two dangers we need to avoid. Number one, we don't want our own cultural baggage to become part of the gospel message. In other words, we don't want people to think they have to become like us in order to become Christians, culturally. And second, we need to make sure that we don't let elements of the culture alter or eliminate the distinctiveness, the integrity of the gospel. So it's a tightrope we have to walk between biblical faithfulness and cultural relevancy. Taking the unchanging word of God, the supercultural message of the gospel that transcends all cultures and yet presenting it in a way in that culture that speaks to the deep Heartfelt needs of the people and makes the gospel good news in that culture. Does that make sense? All right. Um, I'll try to get Pastor Travis some uh, some additional notes or PowerPoints because if we'd had time, we wanted to look at some different different worldviews and help you see uh, maybe ways to present the gospel more effectively uh, in these different worldview settings. Uh, you present it different in Asia than you might in sub-Saharan Africa. You present it different here in the southern United States than maybe you would uh, in um, in somewhere like um, <coughs> in a Muslim context, for example. So, we, 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 I can give you some stuff that'll be helpful to you. There, we can dig a little. You can dig a little deeper into that, okay? I but I want to be mindful of the time. Can I ask one question, though? You may. They're what? They're poorer. Poorer. Yeah, and we almost see the people as inferior to us. Do you feel like that kind of has a play here that we... Well, it definitely does. all of us have a tendency to be ethnocentric, to believe our culture is better. And and, and listen, everybody does that. It's not, not just us. I'm not trying to heap a guilt trip on us. We grew up again, we've been imprinted by our culture, so we think that to be happy you have to have this, this and this, or you know, to, to be a Christian you have to believe in this way or that way. But now the cardinal truths that we all have to believe, don't I'm not trying to be heretical true, but we have to think and act and and, and, and our Christianity has to look their, their Christianity has to look like our Christianity. Um, so we've got to be careful. But yes, there is a tendency to look at other cultures as inferior. It drove me crazy when we were on the field in Ecuador. I mean, there were things that just drove me nuts and I would say, that's the dumbest thing I've ever seen. Why do they do things that way? It would take me two hours to go pay a power bill. Uh, number one, I couldn't mail it in because they didn't have mail service. So what I had to go to the electrical company and I had to stand in one line, and show them my bill if I could even find it because they would drop it off at the house and you never knew where it would end up. We didn't have a mailbox. It might throw it in the bushes or it might be out on the street. If I was lucky enough to find it, then I would go to the to go to electric company and I would <laughs> the power bill and one guy would look at it he'd go on and stamp it and then he'd hand it back to me and I'd have to go to some other guy to pay. And then he would take my money and he would stamp it and give it back to me and I'd have to go to somebody else to get my receipt because if I didn't have my receipt, I had no way of proving I had paid. Hey, it's the same thing going to the pharmacy. You had to see 1,600 people before you could get your medicine. I was thinking, this is so inefficient. This is so dumb. I came to realize over the course of time that, you know what? This is a way they they provide a livelihood for people in that culture. To me, it was terribly inefficient. Uh, I would have never done it that way. It was wrong. But when I came to understand, wait a minute, there, there, there are four or five people that have jobs here because of this. Yes, it requires a little bit more time for me. A little bit of aggravation there from having to go through all that stuff. It wasn't wrong. It was just different. But yes, our ethnocentric view causes us to look at the way other people do things, the, the things you know, things people eat, or the, the way they dress, or things that they do, and make judgments like that. Travis and think, man, they're they're real, they're poor. They're they're uh, you know they're just they're inferior. Uh, and, and we make those judgments all the time. Even in our own culture, we make judgments about people who are different from us, right? So, yeah, absolutely. So it's a danger, and we have to we have to ask God to help us to jettison our own cultural baggage, recognize what the essentials of the gospel are, and not try to force other people to do it the way we do it. Their way may be different, and. You know what? It may be better. We need to learn from other cultures. You know, uh, here in the United States, we are are so driven by the clock, driven by time. Efficient, efficient, efficient. And as a result of that, a lot of times relationships suffer. And other cultures that aren't as driven by the clock used to drive me crazy too. We'd have a meeting scheduled for 4 o'clock. I'd show up at 4 o'clock. Nobody even think about coming until 4.45, maybe 5 o'clock. But if they ran into somebody, that relationship was more important than being on time to a meeting. Can I learn something from that? Absolutely. Can they learn something from me? Absolutely. But their way's not wrong. It's just different. They place a higher value on relationships than they do on efficiency. And so it's hard for us as Westerners um, who are driven by the clock, who who see so much of our value in what we do. Our vocation determines, you know, in, in many ways how we view ourselves, ourselves, and things like that. And so other places just aren't like that. And it'll drive you crazy in a culture that's relationship focused rather than time driven. But we can learn something from that. And we need to learn from that in many instances. Any other question? That was a good one. hope I answered it. All right, folks. Thank you so much. I want to be respectful of your time. Have a great rest of the evening. Let me pray for us and we'll be done. Father, uh, thank you. Uh, For our salvation, and we recognize that Jesus Christ crossed the greatest cultural divide that anyone has ever crossed In leaving the culture of heaven The adoration of the heavenly host (laughs) Uh, Unbroken relationship With you, his heavenly father In a place that didn't have to deal and doesn't have to deal with sin to leave that culture and come to this one a place full of sin, to deal with people who hated it and to struggle with humanness hunger and thirst and emotional feelings and and rejection and betrayal Lord if you were willing to cross that chasm of culture to leave the culture of heaven to come to the culture of earth. I pray, Lord, that you would make us willing to cross cultures with all of the uncomfortableness that it might bring, with all of the requiring of learning that it might require for the sacrifice, that we might be willing so that others from different nations, tongues, tribes, and peoples might one day be gathered around your throne in heaven singing, your praises do all in eternity. So we thank you for reaching down to us in that way. Please burden our hearts that we might reach out to others in that way. So pray that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Entrust Podcast. Make sure to check out rockycreek.church for complete notes and additional resources. You can also subscribe to this podcast. We hope that you take what has been entrusted to you here and give it to another.